This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. no opening sponsor for this episode of In the Arena. Instead, I want to send you to one of my sites to give you a free resource. The Model Sales Week is a nine-part video series that you can get for free by going to themodelsalesweek.com. And there you're going to find a link. You can give us your email address and your first name, and we will send you immediately to those nine videos where you can watch some of my best ideas about how to be truly productive as a salesperson. So go to themodelsalesweek.com and sign up and get the nine-part video series immediately. There's no uh, drip. It's not going to come email after email. You go immediately. You get all the content. I hope you enjoy it. Send me a note. Go to thesalesblog.com. Go to the contact page. Send me a note. Let me know how you're doing with that content, and I hope you enjoy it. I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world here in the arena, and today is no exception. My guest is Dr. Carmen Simon. She's a PhD cognitive scientist, and her work is helping visible brands craft memorable messages by focusing on how your brain works. And to do that, she has two doctorates, one in instructional technology and one in cognitive psychology. So she's a bit of a brainiac, and she's a world-recognized expert in presentation design. I invited her in the arena because what she does will give you science-based techniques for getting other people to see things your way, to remember things your way, and ultimately to create a preference to buy from you. Her book is called Impossible to Ignore, Carmen Simon in the Arena. Hi, Carmen. How are you? Good, good, good. Great to hear your voice. Good to hear you. And you're in San Francisco right now? San Francisco, where many people leave their hearts. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I love it there. I love California, though, generally. It's very nice and inviting. And at this time of the year, we're recording this in uh, July. The weather is starting to be irrationally cold. <laughs> and you can get a wonderful one-bedroom apartment there for about five or $6,000 a month, right? For a small fortune, you can, you can live here. <laughs> That's right. That's the expensive part. Well, let me start by asking you this. What exactly does a cognitive scientist do? What is the work of a cognitive scientist? The work of a cognitive scientist focuses on studying and researching mental functions, such as attention, memory, decision-making, problem-solving, creativity, learning, all the wonderful things that keep us going every day. So you spend a lot of time thinking about thinking. Thinking about thinking and also researching, because it's one thing to think about it, and it's another to research and do some empirical studies and find some evidence-based guidelines that people can use in practical terms. Because quite often, I speak to our clients and different corporations, and they'll say, okay, we understand all of this cognitive stuff, but what is it that they can do for me like now? How can I improve my sales or how can I improve my marketing or how can my IT people speak a little bit better to others? And so you're one of these people who takes something and you have a PhD, right? I do. I have actually two of them. And one is in instructional technology, which looks at various tools that we have available, such as uh, the internet or our phones, any technology that has become popular and we take it and we make it instructional in some way so you can learn with it or from it. And the other doctorate degree I have is in cognitive sciences, which is exactly what we're talking about. So researching mental functions. And lately, because neuroscience has become even more popular, neuroscience is the field that studies the structure and the function of the brain. Now we're starting to merge the two fields. So when you merge cognitive science with neuroscience, What you get is a lot deeper knowledge as to where attention takes place in the brain and how, and how memories are formed and how decisions are made, and uh, most often not, 
well, we made it to the point where we can see on an MRI machine uh, the birth of a memory, which is pretty cool. It's very important for me because I had a misspent childhood fronting a rock and roll band. And then I had a brain surgery in 1992 where I had an arterial venous malformation and I had a small piece of the back right temporal lobe removed. And now whenever anybody says anything to me about, remember that time when you, I just say, no, I have no recollection of that because that was the memory that was lodged in that part of my brain that was removed. But now we have scientific evidence that I can actually rely on to make excuses for not remembering those things. <laughs> so true. And, and what's even more intriguing to scientists is the fact that now we don't have to wait for people to have accidents or to die. So you see, you, you had an accident. And as a result of that, people could invite you in their labs and do some tests on you without having some technology that actually reads into your, your brain or scans your brain. And that's one way to study things. But now because we have a much larger inventory of brain imaging techniques, we can learn from, from those and we can learn from some computer algorithms that some other scientists have designed in order to decode the brain. Have we made it to where we can decode the entire brain knowing where everything is and what it does? Definitely not. But we've made such great progress. We used to know only 30 regions in the brain. Now we know more than 300. It will be very soon that we will hopefully be able to do just that, decode the entire brain and unveil one of the biggest mysteries in the universe, which is our brain. Consciousness. Ooh. <laughs> That's what I want to know. What is it? And where does it live? <laughs> Welcome to the merger of now two worlds. One would be the neuroscience part of it, and the other one would be the philosophy part of it. Yes. Because while neuroscientists will tell you what happens at a molecular level, for instance, in the brain, you get a philosopher that says, but show me where the mind is. Like, for instance, it is still a mystery to define the difference between the brain and the mind or the difference between what happens at a neurotransmitter kind of level and the difference between that and what you know as to be a self. What is the self? So, yeah, it's, it's an intriguing a mystery that keeps on going and there is no right or wrong answer to define it. But if we were to, to think about consciousness, let's look and define it in practical terms. So people who are listening to us and uh, if they want to improve the way they communicate or they, the way that they speak with others, consciousness would be the level that you would want your customers to be at as they listen to you and they make decisions. So keeping them focused on a task that serves you and them well is a good conscious state to be at. We're not hanging up on this call until you tell me where consciousness lives in the brain. Um, the, this will be a long conversation. <laughs> the interesting thing is that you've taken all of this knowledge and like very few people do, you have developed a commercial application to one area that I think is a critical area because of the time that we live in and it, it's uh, content creation. So I want to run down this path with you and I want to talk about content creation. I want to talk about your work around being memorable. So I want to start with content and I want to ask you a two-part question. What are the mistakes that we make when we create and share content? And then why is it that we are forgettable with the content that we make? So we can answer all of those questions if we step back and start with a premise that's sort of the foundation of a book I just wrote recently called Impossible to Ignore. And I start with the premise that decisions, any decisions that customers make, hopefully in our favor, are based on what people remember, not on what they forget. And one of the reasons people forget is because they don't pay attention to begin with. So these three pillars, attention, memory, and decision-making, are something that has to be at the forefront of anyone considers when they create any communication material, attention, memory, decision-making. And if you're talking about mistakes that people make, is that at least one of the three pillars is not strong enough in the way that they communicate. And one of the reasons we are forgettable is because we, we keep forgetting about it. You're talking about consciousness just a few minutes ago. One of the ways that we can also define that is this ability that we have to constantly want to predict the future. We're constantly, the brain has evolved to be on fast forward all the time, which is why we're hardly ever present. So another mistake that we make, which is why we're forgettable, is to not anticipate what our audience's brains will need next. What will they need tomorrow in order to make a decision? 
So creating communication that's already in the future where decisions happen is one of the greatest things you can achieve for anything that you want to communicate. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that recipe in the book and in your work. We're forgettable, but let's start with the first part of that is what, what do we have to do to get the attention? And you said this, people are not paying attention. And I think part of it is what Mark Schaefer calls content shock. There's so much content now, it's very <laughs> hard to rise above the noise. And why is the threshold for the stimulation of our attention so great? It is true that we are facing a content shock and coming back to that question about consciousness, part of it is also the sense of awareness. So the fact that if we become aware of how much people forget about us and of what we share, then that's already a good step. So we're conscious about what's going on and uh, we'll make our audiences conscious then about what they must remember. So I would say in that recipe, as you call it, or in that journey of becoming memorable, the very first step is to ask the question, what do I want people to remember about me or about the special communication that I'm developing? Even about our podcast right now, we have to ask the same question. What do we want people to remember at the end of it? And my answer to that would be, I want everyone who's listening right now to remember this, that memory is at the root of all decision making. So that's the reason why we're even talking about memory in, uh, in practical terms. So the very first step is always, always ask, what do I want people to remember? And when you ask that question, then many, many sub-questions will, uh, will start arising as well. Like, for instance, I was working with a company not too long ago, and they were telling me about these three messages that they wanted people to remember. And one of them used these words of a product that was called ingeniously versatile. And I kept asking him, are you sure this is what you want people to remember? Because that is not a phrase that comes to mind easily. So in asking the question, what do I want others to remember? Make sure that your answer includes something that will come to their minds easily because their brains and our brains in general are not like a computer, like you hear the metaphor all the time. A person's brain does one thing and one thing only very well, which is help you fight to live another day. And in that fight, it constantly looks to conserve energy, which is why many people fall asleep in presentations, for instance, because the brain wants to conserve energy. And if you're giving the brain a message that is hard to recall later on, then it will give up on it altogether. So that's why a phrase like ingeniously versatile may sound good and may look good in writing, but it's not so easily rememberable. Are you suggesting that people fall asleep in presentations as a way to save their own life? The, yes, that, that, that presentations kill. <laughs> exactly right. So the, any chance the brain will find to conserve energy, it'll take it. The idea behind this whole concept of attention and the threshold for stimulation. When you gave that example, I'm just thinking about ingeniously versatile. Do they want them to remember that it's ingenious or do they want them to remember that it's versatile? It seems like those two together make it more clunky and more difficult to remember. <laughs> That is, that's exactly what our debate is. This product that they wanted to advertise, they were advocating the fact that many other products in the, in the industry are versatile, but not versatile in an ingenious kind of way. So that was their differentiator. But I agree with you. The phrase sounds so convoluted, and especially if you're dealing with a diverse audience and those people speak English, but maybe not so well, those two words would not only come to mind in a difficult way, but will be very hard to repeat. So as we know, intuitively, repetition is the mother of memory. So if something is not easily repeatable, it will be very easily forgettable. And we're going to get to that because I want to talk about handles and the role of memory. But before we do, I want to talk about, well, I want you to talk about this because you're the expert. So I want to talk about the idea with rats and you've got signal, work, and then reward. And then you've sort of built a recipe that is reward, anticipation, uncertainty. And that, that's part of the recipe for getting this attention and building some sort of a signal that gives us a memory that we can install, for lack of a better word. You can correct my analogy there. So tell me about signal work and reward and then reward, anticipation, uncertainty. So as you investigate your own communication patterns or anything that you want to create for other people, it may be a presentation you're working on or a blog or a marketing campaign, whatever that is, 
imagine what you, your audience would find rewarding, like uh, rats find food rewarding or monkeys find bananas rewarding and uh, some humans find the excitement of discovery rewarding or being creative or learning new things or gaining prominence in front of other people. There are a lot of motivational drivers that people will engage in in order to get to the reward. And some of these studies that you're talking about, whether they're including rats or they're including monkeys, find these things out. And for instance, let's just say that you take a, a rat in a lab and you teach it to press a lever. And as a result of pressing the lever, it gets uh, this uh, this neurotransmitter is released that's called dopamine. And if you put an electrode into the rat's brain, you're realizing that each time that you press the lever, you make it so that the area that secretes dopamine gets uh, activated. And that's when you observe that because the, the rat enjoys that state, that dopamine release, it tends to press the lever constantly. So it goes on and on and on forever until it dies. But he dies a happy rat because that area feels so good when that, that neurotransmitter is, uh, is released. And I'm sure you've heard about dopamine in, in many oh, instances. Sure. <laughs> Everybody knows about dopamine. Everybody knows about dopamine. In fact, it's, uh, it's one of those neurotransmitters that's overly studied to the point where some people are calling it the Kim Kardashian of neurotransmitters, which I don't think is, uh, is fair to dopamine. <laughs> but this is what we're finding out in the process. So it's, it's okay. So we're putting an electrode in the rat's brain. It gets activated every time it presses the lever. So it enjoys that state and it continues to do work. The reason we're intrigued by these studies is because of that key phrase, the rat continues to do the work. This is the newest findings when it it comes to dopamine is that you don't need dopamine to like something as it used to be believed in the past. You need dopamine to engage in some action and carry it through. So you don't need dopamine to like chocolate. You need the dopamine to go get it. And this is very useful information for any communication creator out there because you have to now step back and think, okay, so how can we help our audience's brain secrete more dopamine if that equates with more action on their part? Even if that action is simply to pay attention to us or to continue listening to the podcast or to come back to us in, in, in some way. And that's where the other elements that you're mentioning come in, such as uh, anticipation, for instance. So what scientists are discovering in some of the experiments, so let's just say that you recreate the experiment we just talked about regarding the rat and you now have a monkey and you know what the monkey finds rewarding in this case it's bananas you teach a monkey that each time it presses a lever it will get some bananas which is good so the monkey is willing to go through the effort because it enjoys the reward so much but what the scientists are noticing is that if you bring the monkey into the lab and now you have a light that goes on before the experiment even starts so it announces that something good is going to happen the dopamine level spikes up even more compared to when the monkey simply does their work and it receives the reward. So in other words, it's the anticipation of pleasure and not just simply the pleasure that gets that dopamine level up even more. And to take it a step further, if you bring in the monkey into the, into the lab, you turn on the light so you announce that something good is about to happen, but then you give the reward only 50% of the time. So now you have introduced a, an element of uncertainty. Ooh, the dopamine level spikes up even more. So in practical terms, if you are to think about your own communication, don't make it so obvious all the time, which is the tendency that we sometimes have. So allow in your communication sequences some element of uncertainty to happen because then you have that higher level of dopamine. So that means you have a greater amount of action that people are willing to put towards your, your cause. So now I'm going to have to put in the show notes, Carmen recommends that you treat your potential clients <laughs> like monkeys. <laughs> What's interesting, it's sort of Pavlovian, right? The stimulus causes the dopamine. And the uncertainty even increases it further? Exactly. So it's a Pavlovian on, on steroids in the sense of you're, you're training the monkey to anticipate the reward, which is great. And in, in his case, it was uh, the, the dogs were salivating. But in our case, when you take it a step further and sometimes you give the reward, but sometimes you don't, and it's in a circumstance where things wouldn't happen. See, the, the dogs would still be salivating. That's a, that's a natural process. It's a, it's a reflex. But in our cases for humans, 
what you're getting out of including a maybe in your communication is the inability for the brain to predict what happens next. And the brain has been designed not to miss anything. And those ancestors of ours who missed stuff are no longer our ancestors. It's FOMO, still the, <laughs> the fear of missing out. Exactly right. So give me a, one of your examples where you stayed in a circumstance that much longer because you, you had no idea how it was going to finish. Any any Marvel superhero movie where you have to go through all the credits at the end mm -hmm. to see if there's a teaser for the next one, even though the two minutes of credits is so much pain and it's for about 15 seconds of a clip. Yes. I, I've waited because maybe the clip was going to be great and it was going to be exciting to see. Exactly right. So the practical lesson for all of us to consider is look at your communication sequence as a clothesline. If you're covering for your audience that clothesline 100%, it becomes boring and the dopamine level is not at its highest. But if on that clothesline, you allow 10, 20, 30%, however much you feel comfortable with as an element of uncertainty and you leave enough room for that, then uh, you have a lot more chances for the brain staying with you longer. Interesting. So you leave a question unanswered? You can leave a question unanswered or sometimes what I do in, in some of my sessions, I'll have some exercises that I do not know the outcome of and the audience wouldn't either. For example, in some of my uh, keynotes, I have this exercise where I'll ask people to take in that present moment, a picture of their shoes, email it to me and attach to that picture one or two sentences that describe the story that their shoes tell. Then I switch from my slides to my email program and I share some of the pictures and their stories that are submitted real time. And that causes some element of discovery and a certain uncertainty, which you, everybody finds a little bit difficult to multitask against because now you're curious. You, first of all, you want to see if your picture gets selected. And then you also are curious to see what everybody else says. And uh, you just never know. Is it going to be a story that makes sense? Is it going to be a risque story? You just don't know what you're going to get. And that makes it impossible to look away. Interesting. Let me move us forward and talk about memory, because one of your primary premises in the book is that memory is the key component to decision making. So let's first discuss that so you could share how that's true. And then because that's true, what do we do to influence the memory, specifically thinking about with content? Mm-hmm. So starting with that premise of memory is at the root of all decision-making. That's a, that's a strong statement. It, it is a strong and, statement, and it's a challenging one. It's a challenging one, but just think about how easy it is to, to define it. So, for instance, think about your own situation. Give an example of a decision that you made lately. It can be about anything, just a decision, small or large. It doesn't matter. It can be serious or trivial. Just a decision that you've made in the past few hours even or yesterday. I bought a new piece of equipment that allows me to connect a wireless microphone to this contraption I have sitting in front of me, which is called a padcaster, so that I can take videos just using my iPad, but I can use a really good high-quality mic and a high-quality light to do it. Okay. And you, you bought this piece of equipment because you had another one that didn't work or you didn't have it at all and some things that you're creating were not of the expected quality? I did not have this piece of equipment, this padcaster. But mm -hmm. I did have one that I used for podcasting. Mm -hmm. So I knew there was one in existence. So the one, the minute that you find out that something is um, out there and it's better or it gives you something that enables you to create more quality or something that's more efficient, any of those decisions, if you think about it, are based on what you knew before. And that implicitly is a question of memory because something exists in your, in your brain already and using that, your brain decides where to go next. And that path is sometimes conscious because right now, since we're talking about consciousness, right now you can think about it and explain it. And sometimes it is subconscious. So when we think about the ways that the brain decides what to do next, we can approach it from three angles. There are three paths to decision making. One is a, a reflexive. It's a, it's a given one. It's one that's biologically innate. For instance, the body knows what to do when the temperature drops or increases. The, the brain knows what to do when something uh, smells really good or really bad uh, when something is a hot surface or a cold surface uh, when there's sex involved where there is beauty involved or altruism those are innate behaviors so the mem memory for those is a given so to speak 
Another path to decision-making is habitual. The habits, unlike reflexes, are conscious at first, but subconscious later. So, for instance, give me one of your most favorite habits that really serves you well. <laughs> You're showing me a cup of coffee? That is Starbucks coffee, yes. So Starbucks coffee, a habit that many of our listeners are probably indulging in daily. Sometimes it serves us well. Sometimes, depending on what we choose to put in it, it may not serve us all so well, but it, we still find it rewarding. So those habits were conscious at first. And then now it's almost a given that you start your day with that. Some people even end their days with, with those. And the brain knows what to do next based on habits. So decisions are quite often habitual. And the third path to decision-making is more conscious, so to speak, since we're talking about that term, and it's goal-oriented. So, for instance, if uh, some people decided to watch their weight and then they realize that uh, their habitual Starbucks coffee with all sorts of additives is not beneficial to their goals, now you have to think and make some other decisions. The difference between reflexes and habits versus goals is that the first two do not take that much cognitive energy, whereas the third one does. So that which is automatic feels juicier to the brain because it doesn't have to think that much, whereas that third one is not so appealing because now you have to expand cognitive energy and a lot of willpower, which is in limited resources, which is why change for us quite often is so darn difficult. Is, is that because the cognitive load on the brain is so great when willpower is required and when we actually have to consciously make a decision like that? Exactly. And, and depending on the amount of energy you still have left for the brain to handle, that's when you are able or not to apply willpower. So for instance, after a full day at work where you had to make all sorts of other decisions already, small or large, when you get home and you open the refrigerator door, what do you find easy to reach for? Is it the chocolate or the broccoli? Is this, uh, I don't know if you read the Vanity Fair article a few years ago about President Obama who has two suits, blue and a gray suit. And uh, yes. he basically <laughs> just said that he had decision-making fatigue. And so it's laid out, the tie's there, and he wears one of those two colors every day just to get rid of one more decision that he has to make. Exactly right. And uh, there was a follow-up article not too long ago in the New York Times where he's being asked uh, what would he like to do after he's no longer president. And one of the things that he jokes about is that he would like to be in Hawaii on the beach and have like a little t-shirt hut where the only things that he would sell would be a medium white t-shirt. <laughs> so even, even there, you wouldn't make a huge decision. I saw that he wants to buy a basketball team. So yeah, that, that's a different gig too. I think you would like to have some fun now, my guess. That would require a lot more cognitive power. So he would, he would have to have a lot more resources in his brain left for that kind of an adventure versus the medium white. Yes. So let's go back to memory and decisions. So how do you think about that when you think about content creation? In the book, I've outlined 15 variables that anyone can use to influence other people's memory. And I have to stress this phrase, influence other people's memory, because sometimes when we think about the concept of memory, we think about our own memory and how sometimes how much we struggled. And you would understand this, uh, given the, the situation that you went through a while back. It's more intriguing for us for practical reasons to be concerned about influencing other people's memory because that's what keeps us in business since people make decisions in our favor based on what they remember, not on what they forget. So the 15 variables, the good news about those is that you don't have to use all 15 variables in a communication sequence. Let's just say that you're creating a presentation or a blog, podcast, whatever it is that you do. Not all 15 are mandatory, just at least nine out of the 15. It's also important to emphasize that there are situations where regardless of what you do, you're still not able to influence somebody's memory. Like for instance, I can't influence right now the amount of sleep that you got before our conversation. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Seven. Seven hours is pretty good. On average, people here in North America, continent, they get six hours or less of sleep per night, which is unfortunate because memories are not formed instantly. Memories take a consolidation period in order to form and sleep quite often helps with that consolidation. So if you have the most amazing 
message that could be memorable, but you're talking to a sleep deprived audience, then that message might not be remembered. So there are some variables which we cannot control, such as sleep, an audience's emotional state, the amount of hormones that are going through your body right now, or the amount of stress that you're under. But luckily, we have these 15 that we can control. So out of those, we can address a few for the time that we have left. We spoke briefly about the clarity of your message. I call that the 10% message because after two days, people tend to forget about 90% of the messages that you shared. There is a small amount that tends to stay there. We'll refer to that as a metaphorical 10% because in business situations, it's almost impossible to put a hard percentage over what people tend to remember. And this is because people come to your message without the intent to remember. So you're lucky if they take away something. Fortunately, we know that whatever little stays in their brains tends to stay there long term. So that's the good news. The thing that you have to consider is, are you in control of that metaphorical 10% message? Because otherwise, people leave it to be at random. So for instance, can you share with me some random message that you remember from a presentation you attended lately? Mm, I have to think about that. I don't know if I can. Anything that just kind of, yeah, kind of comes to your mind just as you read something or you attended a performance or something that happened, it just kind of pops in your mind. I saw Cirque du Soleil. Mm-hmm. And what I remembered was that the artists, when they were coming on and off the stage, their transitions were impeccable. I mean, so nobody had to introduce anybody. They came on, they did their thing, and then they would all turn to the audience and sort of accept their acknowledgement before they left mm-hmm. without anybody ever saying a word. So that, that's kind of random, but I noticed it because it was very crisp. So, so that's cool. You notice the, the transitions and how fluid the show was. And notice how as you're reflecting on that show, you're not necessarily specifying certain acts. Like, you know, sometimes in the Cirque du Soleil, we might be impressed by people flying around and hanging on different ropes or jumping off of things or contorting their bodies in, in different ways. Those are more specific. Sometimes we just remember the gist of things. In the book, I clarify this difference between what do we want people to remember? Do we want them to remember verbatim things? So specific words like ingenious versatility, or do we want them to remember the gist of something? Like I had a good time. Things were fluid. They were flowy. And because I had a good time, I'm more likely to buy a service late ticket again. There is no right or wrong answer, but you decide as you investigate your own messages, what is it that you want to put in people's minds verbatim or gist? There are advantages and disadvantages to each. Gist-based memory tends to be longer lasting. So how long ago did you see this show? Four or five months ago. So see, that's a long time. I would love it if in business, we're still on our audience's minds for five months later after after we speak. So that's a compliment to, to their show. And quite often they're after gist. Whereas if I were to say, tell me the precise words that you heard in a business presentation four or five months ago, you'll probably find it a little bit harder. However, the reason why quite often we want to strive for verbatim memory is because that helps us distinguish ourselves amongst the competition. Because you see, if everybody was after gist, let's just say that you offer a product and I kind of know what that does. Let's just say that podcasting that you're talking about. And then some other vendor offers a similar product and I kind of know what that one does. After a while, I won't really know which one was which unless I remember remembered something that was specific. This is an interesting premise that you have that I want you to share because it's so important. So this idea of creating a prospective memory. So you're creating something that you intend to be remembered at some point in the future that, and you said something that's important that I think is really important for salespeople and marketers and business people. We're trying to create a preference for us and for our product And so this idea of what's the cue that's going to remind them and pull that memory back out, how do you create a perspective memory like that? So I'm glad that you're mentioning that term because it's very, very important for us to realize that memory hasn't evolved to help us keep track of the past. It has evolved to help us keep track of the future. Retrospective memory, which is remembering the past, is still useful because Quite often, you can't really predict what happens next or anticipate what happens next unless you have some knowledge of the past. So that's definitely useful. But for us in business, what we must insist on is this notion of prospective memory, which is enabling your audiences, your customers 
to remember you at point B after you communicated at point A. And at point B is where a decision will have to take place. And I'll give you some examples as to how that happens. There are times when it happens well and there are times where it doesn't happen well. One of the best ways to have people remember you in the future, knowing how fallible memory is, is to have cues that are built into the environment that trigger a memory. And for instance, a company that I was impressed by is this company called Bootcamp Australia. Have you been to Australia? Yes. You may have been impressed, I was, when I was there last, by how fit those people are and how fitness is such a major, major thing that they engage in daily. It's become almost habitual. They don't even have to think about it and ponder, hmm, do I have enough willpower to work out right now? That's because everything in Australia wants to kill you. (laughs) It could be. So see, it might be a a reflexive decision that you make to engage into that. So it's a survival of the fittest at its best. But this Bootcamp Australia is obviously an organization that invites you to take part in all sorts of uh, fitness exercises and routines. And an ad that they created, which was just all so clever, their message was make fitness part of your life. So it's a fairly abstract message. And you can kind of picture it if all I did for you right now just said those words, make fitness part of your life. Yeah, big deal. Some of us can do that easier or not. But if we use a prospective memory, we have to ask then, how is it that at point B, if I send this message to you right now today, how is it that tomorrow I can rely on the fact that you will remember those words, make fitness part of your life? And their ad showed this. Imagine your bed right now and imagine you laying in your bed. So you kind of have your covers and you have your, your pillow. You're not in the bed, but above the bed and right next to your pillow is one of those bars and the weight that's attached to it. So you imagine as you'll be doing some lifts as you're laying down with those weights. So that barbell and one of the weights is already attached as if you're ready to work out. You haven't even gotten out of the bed and you can already be lifting weights. And the clever part about this is that they're using the bed and that message. And the bed is such a strong cue for a memory because a bed is something that you see every single day. The mistake that a lot of business presenters make is that as they communicate at point A, they fail to think what cues would people see in their environment at point B to trigger the memory of something that we talked about today. I want to have you riff a little bit more on that because I think about implanting memories and ensuring that what we need to be remembered will be remembered. And I spend a lot of time in the world of sales. And in sales, we have these great conversations and lots of things are said, but our job is to create a preference. And so we need the important thing to be remembered. And I think of this idea about handles and the the stories that we tell have handles. I can hand it off to you and you can retell the story and jokes have handles because of the novelty, the nature of those? And what is it that makes that message memorable and repeatable? What do we have to have in our content to make that happen? So if we're tying it up to this concept of cues, one of the reasons that stories become memorable and jokes become memorable is not so much about their inherent nature. Obviously, that definitely helps. And we can come back to to that question of what makes a story, for instance, memorable. Something is memorable to the extent of it is being recalled at a point that you want to bring it to mind. And cues are some of the strongest tools that you can add in your repertoire to make that happen, just like this company was using the bed as a strong cue to remind you of that memory. I'll tell you where companies fail, even though they have a strong message, but because they have a weak cue, that message will not live as a long-term memory. You know, the company acts the one that does the, uh, yes, the deodorants sure. and they make you smell really good. Obviously it's a manly product. So they were advertising this shower gel. Their slogan was, if you use a woman's soap, you will smell like one. So obviously there is a little bit of emotion involved because they're poking a bit and there is a little bit of negativity in there too, which is a a negative emotion and still a, a memorable emotion. So that's great. But in the way that they visualize this, so if you use a woman's soap, you'll smell like one was the the words that they were using. And as a picture, they showed the word Daniel and obviously a man's name. And then they finished that word with an L-E. So it was now it became Danielle and L-E was surrounded by all sorts of like flowery things. Imagine kind of like a Disney cartoonish show, sparkly things that were surrounding those last 
two letters, L-E. So from Daniel to Danielle, that was the difference between using a woman's soap versus using the axe shower gel. And that's a very cute message, and it makes you react in the moment, which is great because it provokes an emotion, and emotions have more chances to be remembered, which is nice. But there's no cue. So in other words, when I'm in front of the aisle at the grocery store, and now I can have a choice between the axe shower gels and a million of other shower gels, how can I ensure that there is something that triggers the memory to inform my next decision? And I think that something could have been done better there, at least show Daniel versus Danielle on the actual product or as you're standing in front of the aisle so that something triggers that memory. And it's not just something that you enjoy in the moment, but it's so forgettable later on. That's handles. I'm going to go into my lightning round of questions with you, even though it won't be a lightning round, I don't think. But I want to ask you some personal questions just to give us some insight into who you are outside of this work, even though we're going to point people to the book and to your website. What are you reading right now? I'm um, reading uh, several books at once. Is that your habit too, where you yes. start like like three of them? Yes, always. <laughs> okay, so one of them that I'm really enjoying is this, it's called Annoying. And as a subtitle of the science of what bugs us. And I'm intrigued by this because I'm, I'm working on another book of my own that's called The Psychology of Boredom. Obviously, there is a correlation between things that we find annoying and things that we find boring. That's something that's really important to me. I would have guessed the gene. <laughs> the, is that what you're reading right now? Yes. Good, good, good. When do you know that a book must be read to the end? What's your threshold? Chapter one, chapter two? No, I think when I get the gist, I interviewed a guy named Frank Sopper on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I found out by taking one of his tests that I'm what's called a low reader. So I'm always scanning for useful information and I give up when I can't find something that's applicable, something that I can apply or some insight or something useful. So I give up when I can't find anything else to use. Why mm -hmm. did you drop the gene? No, no, no. I haven't even started it yet. Okay. I'm just, as I'm looking at all sorts of books that I'm surrounded by, I kind of know within the first two paragraphs if it's something that I must finish or, or not. And I'm curious if people listening to us or people as they engage in their own reading habits, are they more patient, like you would give the entire chapter or after the second paragraph, you already know. Sometimes I know early. I think that life is too short to read bad books. So mm -hmm. if, if I don't like it, I'm going to pick up another book. And that's the struggle that we have as communicators daily because I'm noticing that people give up earlier and earlier in the communication sequence. So if you ever have to make the choice as to how do I start, what do I put in the first half versus the second half? This is a, a study that I did about uh, two years ago. And we were finding out that the first half of any communication sequence must have your most important information because when it doesn't, just people give up and move on to the next stimulus. What's the most important book you've ever read and why? Ooh, like ever, ever, ever? Ever in the history of ever. I know the answer to that. It's a book, if we're talking about communication, it's a book that's called Moving Mountains. And for any listener who enjoys not only the practical terms and guidelines that you're talking about, but also reading about those in just beautiful rhetoric, that is definitely the book to, to buy. Who wrote it? It's an older book. Speaking of gist versus verbatim memory, I'll have to think about the author's names because here I'm remembering the gist of the book, but not the author. But you know it made an impact. Definitely made an impact. What was that impact for you? Each chapter gave me something to hang on to and to relate to. For instance, there is a moment in the book where he talks about how important common sense is. And even though the person is not a brain scientist, he's just a simply a brilliant communicator, I'm enjoying his perspective almost as a philosopher because I can translate it into brain science terms. So when he talks about the importance of alluding to common sense very quickly in your communication sequence, the reason I know that works from a brain science perspective is because the brain immediately looks for something that's familiar. And common sense is just that. It's familiarity. We seem to think that, oh, we should impress our audiences with novelty all the time and just give them something that they find that they haven't seen before. And that's true 
only to a certain degree, it's familiarity that the brain craves, because remember, we're talking earlier about the brain's tendency to want to conserve energy. And when things feel familiar, then you just ease into the conversation a lot more more quickly. That's why people prefer to go on some vacation spots where they've been before, because they can anticipate the what happens next a lot better. Totally. I'm a creature of habit like that. Tell me, do you read philosophy? I do, not as much as I like to and as I used to, but Schopenhauer, for instance, is uh, is one of my favorites. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, Ken Wilber. Ooh. Do you know I don't, you, um, no, I'm not familiar. Yeah, you should look at Ken Wilber's work, Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, and your brain's big enough that you'll be able to read it and have an easier time than I do. <laughs> That's one of my all-time favorites. And the Audible book, where if you really want to hear his personality, is an interview by a woman who runs Sounds True which is sort of a spiritual bookstore. That's called Cosmic Consciousness with a K. And I've, okay. probably, I've probably given that book away more than any other book. Interesting. I wrote it down. Who's had the biggest influence on your thinking? I want to say um, various people. Should it be just one? You can have as many as you want. <laughs> the one that comes to mind instantly, which is see why this is why it's important for us when we create messages, just make them come to mind easily because what comes to mind easily is equated also with truth. If it comes to mind easily, it must be true. And what comes to mind easily right now is a friend of mine is named James. He used to play soccer for the national team in Uganda. And the first person who ever taught me how to play tennis. I remember those lessons being beyond the physical aspect of, uh, of learning a new sport, just such a, a deep connection. And I think he's the first person who ever taught me the importance of friendship. Once you have that and the lesson of human connections are so important to evolving in life, then many other things can happen from that. Interesting. That's a great story. Tell me what's the most important lesson you've learned in life. Ooh, we can uh, see again things that come to mind easily. Just uh, just recently, as I've been doing all of this research that I've put into the book, and it took about three years to comprise all of those conclusions. I think the most important lesson is being able to anticipate what happens next. In any given circumstance, just analyze your own situation. If you're able to anticipate the future, there are so many positive consequences for your livelihood, for your happiness. And when you can't anticipate the future, then the opposite happens. So do you ever find yourself in situations where you can anticipate or do whatever you can to be in situations where you can anticipate the next? Yes. It makes me comfortable. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if I were to embark on yet another book in addition to the psychology of boredom, I think I would call it what's next or simply next. Because I think that there is so much more to study in that ability to to know what will be tomorrow. If you weren't writing and speaking and doing the work you do with Rexy, right? Rexy Media, yeah. What what job would you be doing? I'd love to be a dancer. <laughs> something physical, something completely out of the uh, the realm of the upper left quadrant of your brain, right? <laughs> But see, you, you see that any time that you ask that question, and I'm curious if our listeners are in the same way, if we were to ask anybody who's listening in right now, what would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing right now? I guarantee that the, the next answer is still linked to something that right now feels habitual, because even though dancing may seem different on the surface, because it is physical and not so much mental, there is some connection. Like, for instance, there is a sense of rhythm, and there is a sense of order. And there's a sense of beauty. And all of those are part of what I do right now when we talk about communication and creating presentations and displaying things in such a way that an audience remembers a performance. Good answer. What do you hope to be remembered for? Ooh, I'd love people to remember that Carmen said memory is at the root of all decision making. So that is one abstract thought. But on the other is if we talk about something more tangible, I would like people to remember Carmen is the one that helped others stay on people's minds longer. Because ultimately, if you talk about legacy, if you manage to be in a position where people remember you, that means you improve your longevity that much more. Have you heard or read that book, The Inferno? Dante, oh, Dante. sure. Yeah. I read Dante. 
Dante's Inferno, if you remember, there is a part where he gets to the seven levels of hell, so different levels of hell, and he meets all of these souls, and they realize that at some point, Dante is going to return to the land of the living. So the only wish for these tormented souls to Dante is, please, please have those people remember us. So to be remembered means to be alive. And that's why it's a luxury these days. If you can manage to use anything that you can, those 15 variables definitely help to stay on people's minds. That means you'll live that much longer. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. And we will point people to Impossible to Ignore on all the places where they can buy it. Thanks, Carmen. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. That was Dr. Carmen Simon, and you can find her at rexymedia.com. You can also find more of her work there. You can also find her on Twitter at rumemorable, and that's her Twitter handle. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And I have free resources available for you at howtoplanasalescall.com where you'll find four training modules. And you can also find free resources, a nine-part training module at themodelsalesweek.com. If you liked this show, go out to iTunes, subscribe to In the Arena, and leave me a review, whether it's positive or negative. Let me know what your thoughts are. And until next time, I will see you in the arena. This episode of In the Arena was sponsored by Sales Gravy University. You know I'm good friends with Jeb Blunt, and you know he does great work, and you know he wrote Fanatical Prospecting, but you may not know that he created Sales Gravy University. And what is Sales Gravy University, you ask? And it's a great question. Sales Gravy University is sales training in your pocket. What you're going to get is an innovative training app that's going to help you accelerate your sales performance and improve your income and it's in your pocket. It's on your phone, whether that's an iPhone or an Android phone. You can go out to the iTunes store and download the app or you can go to the Play Store and download the app there. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the platform when you sign up and you're going to be able to buy what you want. There's going to be in-app purchases there for you. You can purchase some courses for 99 cents and that might be a short video, a tutorial or an audio program. You're also going to find something that costs more. I think I have a program on there for nine dollars and 99 cents and it's how to plan a sales call it's four modules it's probably close to 25 minutes long and it's content to help you set up success when you're going to do the most important thing that salespeople do and that's go sit down face to face with a client or a prospect here's what i love about this platform and this is where i think jeb's genius comes in This is spot training. So you're in your car. You've got a problem. You're going to go out. You're going to watch a video. You're going to read a tutorial or you're going to listen to an audio track. And you're going to come up with the ideas that you need to succeed when you're sitting down with that customer. Or maybe this is part of your personal development and your growth. And you're going to listen to one module every week. And you're going to work on that module. And then the next week, you're going to pick up something else and grow from there. Go check out Sales Gravy University. You can Google it and you'll come up with the iTunes preview as the second link. You'll also find the link in the show notes or go out to the Play Store and search for Sales Gravy. I promise there's nothing else in the world called Sales Gravy and only a Southerner like Jeb Blunt who rides horses and eats steak and probably drinks whiskey is going to call something Sales Gravy because to a Southerner, nothing is real unless you can put gravy on it. Go check it out. When you get there, tell Jeb that I sent you and do check out the sales call planning module there. I think you'll love it and I think that you're going to find it super helpful when you go in to make a sales call. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.